So this morning, I do invite you to turn to Exodus 11. In fact, we're going to be looking at quite a, a large section over here, uh, also chapter 12. And the way I want to proceed is I do want to make a few comments, just to uh, remind you where we've been and, and where we're at. Then we're going to read selective, selected passages uh, from that particular text. And then I'm going to try and deliver a message. Uh, let's just first pray, just coming to the Lord. Lord, as we turn this morning to your word, we do come to a particular, particular difficult passage. But Lord, I do pray that the weight of this passage would indeed impact on our lives. Keep us, Lord, from leaving here this morning, uh, not uh, thinking, not even paying attention to that which is taught that which has been delivered to us in this instance. Praying for your Holy Spirit, Lord, we know apart from Him, we do no good thing, no lasting fruit. And so we pray for this fruitfulness of the Spirit in our lives individually, men and women and, and young people, boys and girls yet today, and then, Lord, also even as a church, may we know something of your continued blessing and grace toward us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been in the section of the Bible fairly well known. I think even among some of the boys and girls, they would have looked at the plagues, the 10 plagues that occurred uh, just prior to the exodus of the people of God out of Egypt. Just a couple of comments that I do want to make just to set the scene here. The plagues were not random acts of coercion. I think we need to see that. This is not God adding argument upon argument upon argument, trying to twist the arm of Pharaoh. He's not uh, pushing Pharaoh into a particular position or a particular place. Instead, I want us to see, and we did see this in the last message, that the ten plagues were God's way of asserting. God was communicating something about His being, about His ability, about His supremacy. And so He was asserting, He was demonstrating this supremacy that He has over the Egyptian gods. Egyptians had identified in their thinking and their practice uh, various gods, little g, and uh, as Moses enters into that context speaking on behalf of God. There's this, this demonstration to say that these gods are as nothing uh, compared to the one true and the living God. Just one example I want to give, and, and uh, the first plague is, is an example of, of how this is demonstrated. Egyptians worshipped the Nile. Understandably, uh, they saw the Nile, Nile as their water source, and in that part of the world, you definitely need water. And so for them, this was their sustenance. This was what provided them life. And so by God turning the water into blood, God is removing that, that, that source that they saw as, as essential for them. Uh, God is, is, is demonstrating His authority over the Nile and making their God a stench in their nostrils. There's nothing they could do. 
about that. And then thereafter, in each successive plague, it, it becomes clear, I tried to indicate this last time, that the God of Israel is over and in control of the gods of Egypt. And, and they're powerless. They, they cannot do what God can do. There's no competition to the one true and living God. Now we've got to the place where nine plagues have come and gone, and, and we find that Pharaoh continues to be as stubborn as ever. He repeatedly, if you read through this passage, you will find that he affirms he will not let the people go. He does not know the Lord. He says he does not know this God. He will not humble himself before God. He will not submit to the request. Now let's take a step back. That's Pharaoh. But I want to tell you this morning that this attitude toward God is not unique to Pharaoh. Many men and women, even today in 2021, perhaps even someone yet today, I don't know. There may be someone here this morning who, like Pharaoh, would be thinking of yourself as strong and mighty. Pharaoh certainly thought of himself as invincible and outside of the scope of God's supreme power independent of God. No, no need, no, no necessity to obey God. And if we look further afield in the Bible, we see therefore that Pharaoh and, and many others would be counted along with uh, what I would call the hordes of rulers that we even see today that are described for us in Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and is anointed. Look at any leader. Look at most leaders in, on the international uh, uh, landscape. There, there is no uh, submission to God. There's no willingness to support and promote the teachings of God. There, there's a sense of digging their heels in, of knowing better. But what we do need to see, and I hope you'll see this this morning, that Pharaoh's stubborn resistance does not frustrate the purposes of God. Each of the plagues had their purpose. And the final plague, the one we're going to look at this morning, had a very specific primary purpose, a very specific main purpose in, in this message, in this plan that God was unfolding in terms of redemptive history. So having said that now, turn to your Bible and follow with me. And we're going to jump around a little bit because I want to uh, move through the passage quite quickly. I want to start at the beginning, so Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Down verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now pause there. Think about the reality of every firstborn. Now, there may be firstborn among us here this morning in terms of your family. You may have a firstborn. The reality of these people, of what God was going to do, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Even from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry, understandably, heartache and excruciating pain and grieving, a, heart, a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been ne never, and will never ever be again. 
Then if you go to chapter 12, and we'll pick it up in verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Down to verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, uh, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then if we jump down to verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so. And the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon... And all the firstborn of the livestock and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. That's a tough, scary, difficult situation. I want to introduce the message this morning by thinking back when I was a little boy, that's a long time ago now, uh, to make ends meet. Uh, my family were six. I have two older sisters. I have a younger brother, my mom and dad. My dad was a factory worker. There wasn't much money in our home. And so what my mother did was she opened a creche. She, for many years, I remember in my schooling years, she looked after Six children. Always had six children. I think that's what, what, what they were allowed from the social welfare department. Well, many children came and went in our home. And we shared our house with them. We got to know them. We became friendly with them. But there was one little girl that I will never forget. And, and this is the honest truth. I will never forget this little girl. At the time, she was about four. She was one of those really cute girls. You know, some kids are brats. No, this girl was really just a lovely little girl. One of the children that we all loved in the home, uh, the children, as children, we, we played with her. She was our little friend. And so when, when we were told that she had died in a car accident, we were devastated. We were devastated. This girl had become like a little sister to us. Our hearts were broken. And what had happened is that, very sadly, her dad allowed her to stand in the middle behind the two front seats 
of the car. You know what I mean? Two bucket seats, parents sitting in the front, mom and dad, little children, little child standing uh, behind, whispering, talking, playing, mom and dad. Well, the dad did not buckle her in. He did not use the provided seatbelt on the back seat. And so when he slammed on brakes, she flew over the seat, under the dashboard, broke her neck. She died. More than 50 years have passed, and I confess this morning I still shudder when I see parents irresponsibly not tying their children in with seatbelts. How can you do such a foolish and stupid thing? The fact of the matter is, every time I get into a car, I feel vulnerable myself until I am secured behind the seatbelt. Makes me feel safe. You see, the provision for safety is freely available for you every time you travel. Open your eyes up on the highway or as you sit at the various traffic lights, and you will see that some people make use of that provision. Even though it's law to make use of that provision, some people do make use of it, and others don't. Never thinking they are at risk. Why would a mother, why would a father not buckle in their child? Surely, surely they, they don't think that, that this child is at risk. They're just blind to the reality of the risk. Now, in some small way, and it's just a small way, the use or the neglect. So on the one way, we have the use of a seatbelt. On the other hand, we have the neglect of a seatbelt. illustrates different people's responses to the safety God provides in what I want to call the grace that is in the tenth plague that we're going to examine today. The dangerous predicament in this passage, in this instance, is not having to negotiate the Gauteng rat race. It's terrible to get out on the roads. We know that. There are people, there are maniacs on the road who have no regard for the law. They have no regard for other people. So it's a rat race. It's a dangerous rat race. Well, that's not what we want to speak about today. What I do want to speak about is the neglecting of the provision from the wrath of a holy God that is being unleashed against rebellious sinners. And so a very simple message this morning. As you sit here, as I stand here this morning, you and I are either exposed to the wrath of God on the one hand, or you are protected from the wrath of God on the other hand. And so there are two implications, two points that I want to make this morning. And my first one is simply this. You may be at risk. You may be one of those people at risk. And as we go to this passage, we see after the ninth plague came to an end, Pharaoh, Pharaoh once again calls for Moses. Chapter 10, verse 24. And he tries to negotiate a compromised settlement. Well, the meeting ended in what appears to be another dead end. But Moses has heard from God. God had a plan. God had a plan from the beginning. God was unfolding his purpose. God was unfolding his plan, step by step. And so here is God's message and his plan of action. 11, verse 4. About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt as there has never been or ever will be again. It's a terrible plague, this. The death of all the firstborn is this tenth and final step, this final plague that God takes in His dealings with Pharaoh. Now, I'm sure at least some of these Egyptians, and perhaps even just for a moment, Pharaoh must have felt if this was to be true, surely this is a devastating announcement of action. What was going on? Why was God doing this? Well, we'll see as we move on that this was to be a taste of the judgment and wrath of God against sin and idolatry amongst the people of Egypt. And we read of this in chapter 12, verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt at night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. God will have the final word. And why will he have the final word? He says it in a phrase, I am the Lord, one true and living God. Now let's just pause here for a minute and ask the difficult question. I think it's understanding that any one of us would react, especially to children dying of victims as a result of God's action on this particular night. Why would God do that? And we do need to look at the Scriptures and see that we must not miss the truth that all people, boys and girls, adults, young adults, older people, all people everywhere from every nation are born with a built-in natural rebellion to God. If you have children, if you had children, you see that manifesting very early on. So you and my predicament is, is confirmed by Paul. And, and as I wrote these notes down, I thought to myself, these were the first verses I, I learned that I remember learning as a child. Romans 3 verse 23. What does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Adults and children. Old people and young people. And Romans 6 verse 23, there's a consequence, there's an outcome. The wages of sin is death. The challenge to us who come to church every week, do you believe it? Do you believe the Scripture's analysis of humanity? Because believing the Scriptures will lead you to see that all people are at risk. All people are exposed to the wrath of God. God is absolutely and infinitely holy, and He will punish all wrongdoing and sin. We'll do it. As much as we don't want it, we don't like it, God will do it. And why will He do it? He tells us, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's because people dig their heels in against God. People don't give God the, the worship and the honor and, and the glory that He deserves. People don't obey God. People do their own thing. And so God repeatedly warns throughout the Scripture, but we see Israel being warned through Moses. We see others uh, warning in, in, in other prophetic books. I'll give you two examples. Deuteronomy 9.7 Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. 
From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. The rebellion of people provokes the wrath and anger of God, the judgment of God. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 20. Your sons have fainted. They lie on the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They're full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. And so, folk, we, we must listen to this. I said this morning in my prayer that this is a weighty sermon. It ought to be heavy on your shoulders. It ought to be uh, weighty on your heart because you may be at risk today. Your family may be at risk. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so your sin, my sin, exposes me to the judgment and the wrath of God. Do you believe that? Pride matters because pride parades around Refusing to enthrone God. Unbelief matters. It does matter if you turn your back on what God has revealed. Defiance matters, which is disobedience. If God has instructed in certain ways and there's a deliberate disobedience or any kind of disobedience, it matters. The way you treat others. Theft. People are not going to get away with theft and adultery and sexual perversion and murder. Exodus 22, if you mistreat them, they will cry out to me, and I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you. I mean, this is God speaking. I mean, this is not what we used to, you know. Uh, God is all squishy and mushy and lovey. That's, that's the, the message we normally uh, hear. Uh, no, this is God speaking. Uh, I, I, my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. That, that's God in anger against sin. Well, the Passover conveys a message to all people. The wrath of God is real. You cannot avoid exposure to the wrath of God, and that ought to trouble you. Does it trouble you? And in fact, I want to ask the question in application, because we live life, we face issues, what is it that you fear the most? Does the wrath of God even feature on that particular list? It may be, oh, land expropriation. I'm going to lose my title deed on my house. Oh, I don't want to do that. I'm scared of that. It might be the political instability in South Africa. It might be the economic down to, oh, what are we going to do? The rand is 20, to, uh, 20 rand to the dollar. A rand is going to be worth nothing. And so we fear that. It may be what some say might be hidden in the vaccine. Or it may be fear of those who appear to be driving the world's agenda. Is that what you fear? You see, now I want to acknowledge it's true that all these have some measure of risk that does provoke a response in us. But I do want to urge this morning, and I'm trying to use a comparison here, the greatest risk, the most urgent risk is having to face the wrath of God, which you will do. And I will do. Which leads me to my second point. Not only you may be at risk, but my second point, this is the good news. You may be safe. Again, let's enter into the picture with the Israelites. Whereas before they saw the previous nine flags at a distance happening to the Egyptians. Now the tenth plague, we see that they too are at risk. That same night that God brought death to every house in Egypt, 
There was no automatic immunity from death of the firstborn of the destroyer. Verse 23 of chapter 12, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood where on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your homes to strike you. Their lives were at risk if they did not make use of the provision. The other plagues had left them unscathed, but now the destroyer will visit them too. And so they needed, as we need, the protection from the wrath of God. That's the good news. They were no more righteous than the Egyptians. We are no more righteous than the Egyptians. Isn't that true? But God's provision. God's provision means so that they could be, be protected and safe. Another provision is described for us in some detail. It starts in chapter 12, verse 3. Every man shall take a lamb, according to the father's house, a lamb for a household. And there are a couple of things said about this lamb. The lamb had to be the right size. It had to be large enough to feed each member of the family. If the family was too small to eat the lamb, they could share it with their neighbor. The lamb had to be the right age, verse 5. Had to be in the prime of his life. They could not use an old, feeble sheep. The lamb had to be without blemish, verse 5. Could not be crippled or damaged or defective in any way. In keeping with this requirement, it had to be carefully observed. Did you notice that? They bring it into the house on day 10. Children play with this lamb. They stroke it. They cuddle it. They check that it's fine. And on day 14, they slaughter the lamb. It had to be slain, verse 6, to be kept until the 14th day and slaughtered at twilight. Now, what is it that is being communicated? What is it that these people are experiencing? It is the issue of substitution. There's a great substitution taking place. By slaying the lamb, the people would be saying that the firstborn, and they recognized that the firstborn deserved to die for their sins, but they were offering a lamb instead. God had provided a substitute. The lamb would receive as their substitute the death that the firstborn deserve to die. Beautiful picture of the gospel. The blood of the lamb had to be applied to the top and sides of the doors. Now again, there's, there's a comment worth making here. It's not just the fact that a lamb was slaughtered. It's not just the fact that the blood was shed. But they needed to believe what God had said in that provision and actually do something. They had to respond in belief and paint that blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. And each Israelite that was to stay in his house, he was to stay in his house, she was to stay in the house, marked with the blood, eat the flesh from the roasted lamb, uh, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and they had to be ready to travel. Now, with that provision in place, God makes a promise. Chapter 12, verse 13. When I see the blood... That speaks to us of justice. Justice being served. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Well, God did as he promised. And there are two scenarios. The, all the firstborn of Egypt died. And dear friends, they had no protection. And, and this is the, the issue that, that I want us to think about this morning in terms of do you have this protection? 
uh, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn on, in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, the firstborn captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up at night and all the servants and, and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house. What will happen on the day of judgment? The same, but worse, even worse. There will be people, there will be men and women who will be separated out from the wrath of God and, and sent to be into judgment. They will be placed in what the Bible calls the lake of fire, in that place where the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. We, we, the, the, we must believe these things. We need to see these things. But the people of God were protected. That's why it's called the Passover. They were passed over. The blood of the Lamb made the difference. Now I want to conclude, and I have two things that I want to say in the conclusion, but I'll get to it. I want us to think again about Pharaoh as we come to the end of this message. Uh, Pharaoh was not unlike many people that we see in the world today, especially those we see in top positions, uh, rulers of big countries. Um, so we could describe Pharaoh as being a man of, of amazing wealth. Uh, he was certainly a man who was influentially powerful. He was a big shot. Uh, he was the head, we could say, at that particular time of the world history, of a dominant world power. We have them in the world today. People who are heads of dominant world powers. Well, for 430 years, the Israelites lived in fear of him, thinking, thinking and believing that the Pharaoh, whoever occupied that position, was invincible. This was the man, they believed, who charted the course of history. Not so. In a moment of God's choosing, and I want to say that again because God's timing is always an issue. In a moment of God's choosing, all that seemingly bolstered him was ripped out from under his feet. The man who publicly dug his heels in against God is defeated my God. It takes me to a passage that Jesus taught. And I want to quote Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Speaking to his friends, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So as you go from the service today, my first challenge to you is, dear friends, don't live in fear of man. Don't live in fear of man. Some of you may be in a place where you're living in dread of those who are wealthy and influential and power-wielding and heads of nations and lots of money because they own corporations and you're anxious, you're anxious that these men and women are, are hijacking and are charting uh, uh, self-serving, godless courses of history out of God's hands. They may be only for a while. Only for a while, as Pharaoh did. But so what? Because they're subject to God. And, and God is not subject to them. And, and we as Christians, we as believers need to, to, to remind ourselves of that. 
Every single person is subject to God. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what support they've got. Doesn't matter what money they've got. Doesn't matter what position or status or inf- no. No, they, they are subject to God. They will give account to God. God is not subject to them. Redemptive history continues to unfold even today as we sit here today and as we go from this place. In a moment of God's choosing, it will all change. In a moment, and I want to refer, re, repeat that statement, at the appointed time, God will rip all that bolters, bolsters those who dig their heels in against God. They will not escape judgment. They will not escape wrath. Which brings me to my second alternative exhortation. Dear friends, let us live in fear of God. Let us live in fear of God. Safety from the wrath of God is what counts. That's all that counts. On the cross, Jesus was exposed to the wrath of God. Jesus suffered as the Lamb of God in the place of guilty sinners. So what do we have in in Exodus is pointing to Jesus on the cross. The cross is the means of protection. All that cross represents. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He protects us from coming judgment and wrath. The blood of Jesus was shed to make atonement for those who believe. And so you've got to be asking yourself, you must be thinking about this. The blood of Jesus, the reality of His finished work on the cross, is it on the doorposts of your life and on the lintel of your life? Church membership and uh, growing up in a Christian country or a Christian home is not going to help you escape from the wrath of God. Your life and soul is in eternal danger if you do not know Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, believing what He's done, repenting from your sin, placing your trust in Him. And so this morning, the the important question is, is, are you still exposed? Are you at risk? And I want to tell you this morning, think of that seatbelt. When you get in your car and you clip it in, or you get in your car and you let your kids stand at the back and you don't buckle them in. Think about protection and safety. Think about the provision that is there to be safe in the car, but more importantly, to be safe from the wrath and the judgment of God. And if you're safe, you leave here this morning rejoicing in the reality of God's provision. Merciful provision, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Lord, I do pray again for that weightiness of this message this morning. This is not something we can just uh, leave uh, unthinkingly or just allow it to just pass off of our backs uh, like water off a duck's back. But, Lord, impress upon us the importance of eternity, the reality of you and who you are as a holy, holy, holy God. And thank you, Lord, for your generous and merciful provision giving to us this gift uh, of salvation to be protected. May we be those, Lord, who make use of this provision to receive from your gracious hand by believing that which you have done and said. And so I just commend each brother and sister yet to you today, men and, and women, and Lord, the children. I pray for the children growing up in a world where there is so much sentiment uh, and antagonism toward God and a denial of your reality. Oh, Father, by your Spirit, convince them of who you are, the need that they have also of sins forgiven to stand before you as those who are righteous, forgiven in Christ Jesus. 
And so thank you for our church today, Lord. Thank you that we can uh, share together, that we can encourage one another in this safety that you have provided. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.